This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. This is Mayor's Monday on our show, and we have with us the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedergartner. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. I'd like to ask you something that I just don't know the answer to, but I think would be of interest to a lot of our listeners, and that is a story or the, or a picking up on a story that was in the Daily Hampshire Gazette this week. And I'm sorry, no, it was in the Republican. A long story about uh, marijuana shops in Northampton, of which there oh. are apparently are a dozen of them. Uh, question being, will they all survive and thrive? And yeah. a lot of the answer to that, I think, depends on what uh, the marijuana business looks like in the surrounding municipalities. I would appreciate it if you would tell us what the status is of uh, retail marijuana in Greenfield. Help us out. I'd be happy to. Uh, Certainly, uh, Northampton's had a nice long run of not a lot of competition around them. I guess there's a place in East Hampton as well, and I'm not sure if that's the only one there. As far as Greenfield goes, uh, we still have one marijuana uh, dispensary, uh, both for medical and retail, open, and that is Patriot Care um, on, uh, in uh, downtown Greenfield. Uh, they were the first, and they were the first to open, and I think they are certainly well within their third year, maybe approaching their fourth year uh, of business. I think I think they're just solidly in their third year of operation. It's the only one, but we do have various licenses. I there's a couple that have been turned back to us. Uh, you know, host. I'm sorry. We have uh, several host community agreements for retail marijuana. A couple of them. At one point, at the beginning of the year, the count was ten. I think we're at eight now. So a couple of them have turned their licenses back in. Or their uh, HCAs back in uh, Monday morning. <laughs> You're making my brain work. Hard. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, um, they're in various stages of licensing before they can open. But right now, we stand to gain two downtown, two more downtown uh, that I'm aware of. Um, and there's a couple of uh, potential ones on Deerfield Street, at least one on Deerfield Street. So, you know, heading south towards uh, towards Deerfield, out of Greenfield. And um, that's about it. I don't have, a, I mean, the Patriot Care keeps sending us money. We like that. I think it's, we're at a little over $2 million in revenue from the taxes from that. Um you do know there's legislation that's supposed to be dealt with in this session where they're trying to, um, I just was hearing about it this morning on the Capitol, in the State House News on my way to work. Um, uh, you know, they, they've gotten greedy uh, at the state level and they are going to try to take uh, some of the host community agreements that we've already um, already established away from cities and towns. So um, be anxious to see how that one works out. Let me go back and see if I understand correctly. Uh, You have Patriot Care in downtown that has been in Greenfield for three, going on four years. There are three more uh, marijuana dispensaries that you anticipate opening soon. That's my question. In Greenfield, uh, two more downtown and one on Deerfield Street. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I can't say a time frame because not, uh, the only thing that's holding them up that I'm aware of is they're going through the licensing process. So it's the state holding them up, you know, and not, not us. Um, so that's uh, what I'm aware of. I know that in both, in, in one of the two cases in downtown um, proper, the, uh, they're doing all their work on the inside of the building. So you, if you drive downtown, you wouldn't notice anything that looked like a marijuana shop, uh, you know, retail store uh, in the works at all because they're doing interior work versus exterior work. So. 
Mayor Wiedengardner, uh, we, we hear a lot about host community agreements, and you've just referenced them, and as well as the uh, money that is paid to a local municipality from a marijuana dispensary. Could you tell us more about what is in a host community agreement and how much money uh, the marijuana shops pay to municipalities and whether that's negotiable or whether it's set by state law? I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. Um, well, it's some of each. Um, it's, uh, it's basically setting out the terms and conditions upon which you can do uh, any kind of marijuana business in the city of Greenville, whether it's marijuana grow, um, delivery, uh, retail, uh, and all the other permutations of it, uh, manufacturing, uh, distribution, uh, all of those things. And it just depends on what your business model uh, says. Uh, the host commun- community agreement doesn't change. Uh, it stays the same, but in it, within the language, it just acknowledges whether you are doing a retail, whether you're doing a grow. Some people, we have one license that's both grow and retail, um, so you can even do a combination of them. How much and, money does this mean? Uh, what are the finances of this from the, the, the city's point of view? Well, from our point of view, you get we charge an upfront fifteen thousand uh, dollars impact fee, and that's you know that's the cost of going through the door here uh, <laughs> and setting up shop, and then uh, we receive a three percent uh, uh, off of uh, their taxes. I mean, they you know the city gets three percent of what they. Uh, what they sell, and uh, the state gets their regular state tax, so 6.25, and of that, the state returns the returns 3% of that to us. So uh, that's basically the finances in a nutshell. I'm interested. Oh, well, let me just follow that up with this question. Uh, since you've had the experience of having Patriot Care downtown for the last three, almost four years, uh, how much money does that mean in revenue in revenue to Greenfield and or do you have projections on how much money, additional money will come in because of the new marijuana dispensaries? I don't know that we've done the projections for the new marijuana dispensaries. I mean, I, we don't, the only data we would have is basing it off of Patriot Care. I, and I, if, if if the city accountant has done that, I am not aware of it, or the finance director. Um, they have Patriot Cares given us over two million dollars. I think they were we're approaching three million dollars uh, for um, uh, from the from them alone. So I guess you could extrapolate that out, and you know, competition might might level that off. Um, I don't know that I'm looking for three percent. Yeah, I mean, three. You know, a million dollars a year for, from everybody, but um, but that would certainly be nice. Um, we really have in the last few years, particularly because of COVID, uh, revenues being down in other areas. We um, are uh, very dependent and uh, have been uh, on that revenue. It sounds like a significant amount of money, a significant contribution to the gross receipts to the city. Is it important to the, and is marijuana, the marijuana business now important as a practical matter to the finances of Greenfield uh, as well as other cities? I would say so. I would definitely say so. Uh, it may, it's probably relative. It may be more important to Greenfield than to some other cities. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of hotel revenue that comes in. Um, just that's just not where where investments have been made in Greenfield right now. We only have one uh, major hotel, and that's expand. Uh, they are expanding. We were going to get two, but um, that particular business decided to go away. So, so that's always a good stream of money. Um, we have our restaurant tax. That's that's always good and has has actually performed quite well even during COVID. 
thanks to takeout and a, a few other things that were done for the restaurant business. So uh, it is a main uh, source of certainly a, a, a big source of revenue in the sense that, you know, it's not from us charging fees or uh, like water and sewer or any of that kind of thing. So, Mayor uh, Wiedergardner, let me interrupt. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I would love to, before we take a break, ask you this question. You talked yeah. about the $15,000 impact fee. That's the essentially the uh, cost of the application to open a marijuana dispensary or a marijuana business in, in Greenfield. I understand that. I'm interested in the word impact fee and whether or not uh, the marijuana businesses that have opened have engendered any opposition in the city. Because 10 or 15 years ago, if you said, hi, I think I'll open a marijuana business uh, in downtown Greenfield, people would have rolled their eyes and thought you had been smoking something. But yeah. he, here we are where it's the new normal. It, has there been any opposition in the city of, of any significance to the marijuana business or businesses that are opening? By normal, do you mean National Organization of the Reform of Marijuana Laws? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was good, Monty. Thanks. Sale business goes, no. I think that uh, even, you know, the uh, Patriot Care opened um, when Bill was in office, uh, Bill Martin. And uh, I don't recall at all a lot of uh, opposition to it at all. And it was, like I say, one of the first around. Um, the uh, there was ex- extreme opposition to the marijuana grow facility out in uh, northern North Greenfield on Country Club Road because they the owners there's three of them there's three separate entities and they each had Tier 11 uh, grow licenses which means they could each have a hundred thousand square feet of canopy on the on the property. Um, so that was beyond the pale as far as the fairly well-developed area. It's not, uh, you know, it's not out in, the, it's not up in the woods or anything. Uh, so there's a lot of houses around there, a lot of development. And the, um, the neighbors simply uh, did not want to have a grow facility of that size. So they banded together and were quite successful in getting the city council to change. Well, that started with the planning, uh, planning board and ZBA's recommendations um, to um, to lower the tier uh, for any grow growing facility. And that was just decided. Um, uh, well, last Wednesday, losing <laughs> track of my calendar here. Uh, at the city council meeting. So from now on, uh, grow businesses, uh, outdoor grow, let me make that distinction, not indoor grow, but outdoor grow businesses uh, must ha- uh, may only have a tier one license, which is 5,000 square feet of canopy. So will there be uh, grow outdoor grow businesses in Greenfield of 5,000 square uh, Square feet, or did this new restriction uh, put the uh, put an end to that in Greenfield for the time being? Um, not for the two businesses that are opening, you know, are are in in play. So probably not even for the uh, for the for the for the one that caused all the uh, the consternation. Uh, they will have to lower the the amount of row area. I don't don't recall that their tier eleven licenses are in place still, um, but um, but they can continue to grow. They just can't grow as much. So it remains to be seen. I think with both of those businesses, how they're going to. I don't remember the other one. They pretty much almost in terms of geography and Greenfield side by side. Um, they're not direct abutters of each other, but they're very in the same neighborhood. Um, the first one went through without any anybody objecting. This second one, which was so large, did, um, did have some objection. So I would say that marijuana grow business is uh, not, uh, outdoor grow is not going to be um, one of the, uh, you know, big, big parts of marijuana business in Greenfield based on that zone, zoning change. 
We are speaking with the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegardner. We're going to take a quick break, and we come back, we're going to talk about the police and, well, summer vacation. What, how does the city Ooh. go on summer vacation? We'll find out right after this. Yeah. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The co-festival closes its 31-year run this weekend with Izell, Ballad of a Landman, a very special show we've been trying to bring here from Eastern Kentucky and New Orleans for three years. Timed with the sun and suitable for all but the very young, this outdoor daylight event begins and ends with a short walk across Hampshire College Farm Center land led by guides and fiddle players. At the performance site, you'll witness an environmental, cultural, and spiritual parable of domination and resilience, one that explores the complexities of climate change, indigenous erasure, land use, and environmental extraction. Reserve now for this Friday or Saturday evening at 6.15 or Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. Interested? Visit kofest.com. That's K-O-F-E-S-T dot com. The Co Festival, where the only certainty is surprise. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on vaccine clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages five and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19 and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. During the break, Monty and I and the mayor had continued our conversation about mar marijuana, which seems to be the uh, topic that keeps on giving. Uh, and, Monty, you had posed, I, I think, an interesting question that I hadn't thought of but seems really important. So why don't you bring our listeners in on that? Yeah, I was wondering whether these host community agreements ever sunset or are they in perpetuity? Will these this specific type of business always have to be paying all of the communities in Massachusetts where they're located this additional levy? Uh, well, our, under our host community agreement, it is uh, it goes down the the tax that is uh, the three percent tax that's directed to. This direct, comes direct to the city, not through the state. Is um, will go down uh, after uh, five years. So for so. the for the first five years, there's three percent of sales goes to the city as a tax, and then after five years, that three percent is reduced. Yes, it is, and that that is negotiable. I mean what it goes down to. 
That's and negotiable municipality by municipality, or is that done at the state level? How is that done? Municipality by municipality. So the municipality can insist on the 3%, but uh, state law allows it to be reduced after five years. Is that is that understanding correct? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, okay, with some with, with a tad, a tad of uncertainty. Yeah, trying to read and listen at the same time. <laughs> okay, but in any event, it's three percent as a tax to the municipality for the first five years. Yeah. Uh, Madam Mayor, I'd like to turn to another matter which we have discussed, and that is the state of uh, policing in Greenfield. And without uh, reviewing the entire story, the budget for the Greenfield Police was reduced significantly uh, after a verdict in Hampshire County, that's where the case happened to be tried, Superior Court. Uh, the city council reduced this, the budget, and there was initially uh, a projection that the city would have to reduce its police force by a s significant uh, uh, number. I think eight out of uh, 42, something like eight out of 40. I'll, eight, I'll, eight out of 34. Eight out of 34, a significant percentage of the uh, number of officers. And then after the uh, dust settled, it turned out that I think the number of reduction in positions was four. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. And the question it raises for me is whether or not there is something to the idea that police budgets can be reduced without significantly uh, affecting the uh, the quality and quantity of uh, services that the police provide. And I'm wondering if you look at this experience so far in Greenfield, what your perspective is on that. Oh, that's interesting question. Um, I I don't. I, it depends on the the budget. The, uh, you know, it, it, it would be dependent upon how the city funds its, um, well, public safety overall, but specifically the police budget. So uh, 34 officers uh, for the city of Greenfield uh, is, um, you know, over 102 miles of roads and so forth, or maybe it's a little more than that. Um, we have a hospital. We have a community college. We are the county seat. We have, the city, we have the county courthouse here. We are not like, uh, say, the city of East Hampton. Um, but, uh, and I, have, I don't recall off the top of my head how many police officers they have in East Hampton. But uh, they don't have all of that other outside. We have the community college, if I don't remember if I put that in there. That outside, um, those larger institutions operating that can often need extra police help um, if they don't have their own security. Um, and sometimes it's just what is needed is police officers. So 34 officers for the city of Greenfield is, is a pretty bare-bones staff, quite frankly. Um, so uh, cutting that um, significantly is um, a, a, a huge detriment to this particular city. We, um, we don't have an overinflated, despite what some people think, who think that without uh, knowledge, um, just their own opinions. We do not have what I would call an overinflated budget uh, for the police department. And a lot of what's in that budget, I mean, apart from salaries and wages, which are all contractual uh, for the police department, um, apart from that, um, many of the items or quote-unquote expenses in the police department have been negotiated within the contract. So you can't really cut a certain... In, it depends on what you're trying to cut. Um, but if you cut an expense line item, and, which is what happened as well, and if you cut the salary and wages line item, um, you're just cutting out of the bottom. Then it's up to the police department and the police chief um, to determine what is the best course of action to take. And, and uh, in this particular case, he can't do that um, without um, also working with it, with it, with the unions on that, because there are in fact going to be well, it's it's a significant reduction of even if it's only four positions out mm. of thirty four. Those thirty four positions have to cover the entire city 
uh, 24 yeah. hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, so that sounds like it sounds like it actually is a pretty significant reduction, even if it's only half the number of positions as was first contemplated. Yeah, and right now we're operating at full staff. We are uh, we have found some money here and there uh, by looking at the budget uh, more carefully and seeing where some potential cuts could be made. We've had one senior officer um, take a, uh, a, a a long-term leave of absence, um, uh, to, and so she may come back and if she if and when, I certainly hope she does uh when things get better but if and she took a uh, leave of absence for a year and went to work for the Irving Police Department at their request <laughs> we didn't just shove her over there <laughs> they wanted her um so um that uh, that helped uh with a, a one or two of the salaries and one of them anyway and we have a pending retirement of another senior officer in January. And there's at least two senior. It's unfortunate because these are all senior officers, senior staff. But if they are saving younger, uh, still experienced, but uh, in most cases, these people that we've hired are the so eight people that we hired most recently that were on the list are uh, have all had academy experience and policing experience when so, they got here. So the total number of the in the reduction of the police force on a, when all is said and done here will be what? It's still potentially four officers, okay. but that hasn't. Okay, Madam Mayor, we're going to let you go because I know that summer vacation is coming up soon. Uh, yeah. when, if the, if, when the mayor of Greenfield is out of the city, uh, who's in charge? I am. <laughs> Really? We got to call Mayor Belmonte. It's not me. It's not me. (laughs) Okay, Madam Mayor, who's in charge if you're not sort of readily available? Uh, The highly capable and wonderful Danielle Letourneau, my chief of staff, is generally acting mayor when I leave. And she's going to be acting mayor come uh, Friday morning uh, of this week and um, continue until I come back in uh, in August. Do you get to a point who becomes acting mayor? Because I think Northampton, it's de facto the president of the city council, right? And Danielle Letourneau is not the president of the Greenfield City Council. So, yes, I do get to a point. Oh, so it could be me. <laughs> I object. I object. I think that's a terrible idea, and we'll talk about it further off the year. <laughs> Madam Mayor, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Bye. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia is releasing a proposed supplemental budget for fiscal year 2023. Garcia says they are proposing an additional $787,000, which would not call for a Proposition 2.5 override, or any reduction in services. Garcia says he took a conservative approach with the original $157 million operating budget. The city council will take up the proposed supplemental budget in late August. Some forward movement on a possible rail trail for Southampton. The town has secured a $300,000 Mass Trails grant to take a look at the three-and-a-half-mile railroad corridor that has been inactive for more than 30 years. The grant will be used to begin the design, engineering, and permitting process for the new rail trail, which would extend from Coleman Road to College Highway. The town has been pursuing the project for more than a decade. The town of Amherst will hold a forum to discuss the removal of their famed Merry Maple Tree and two other Norway trees located in front of the town hall on the North Common. The forum will be held on August 9th at 5 p.m. virtually. Public comment will be welcome at the meeting. The teardown will be part of a complete overhaul of the North Common over the next year, which is expected to cost $1.8 million. And South Hadley's Fire District Number 1 is now on review after supplying insufficient financial information to Moody's Investors Service. The credit rating agency says the fire district is one of 11 local government debt issuers across the country to be placed on review. The fire district has 30 days to submit the proper information or face appropriate rating action, which could include the withdrawal of the issuer's ratings. 
For today, mostly cloudy, warm, and humid. Showers and thunderstorms, highs 84 to 88. Tonight, chance for an evening shower or thunderstorm, otherwise partly cloudy. Lows around 60. Tuesday, mostly sunny. Highs in the lower 80s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El restaurante Fernández en Holyoke ha sido un negocio icónico y representativo de la comunidad puertorriqueña y de la ciudad de Holyoke durante más de tres décadas. Con motivo de su recién anunciado cierre de operaciones y como una forma de reconocer las contribuciones de la familia Fernández a la comunidad y a la ciudad de Holyoke, se llevó a cabo el viernes un evento de despedida dirigido por la líder comunitaria María Salgado Cartagena en Veterans Park, donde se reunieron miembros de la comunidad y funcionarios como la representación estatal Pat Duffy, el presidente del Consejo Municipal de Holyoke, Todd McGee, y el alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, quienes reconocieron a don Rafael Fernández y su familia con proclamaciones por sus muchos años de servicio y compromiso con la gente y la ciudad de Holyoke. Durante el evento, el concejal Magui anunció que ha presentado una orden para que el Consejo Municipal la discuta en sesión el próximo 2 de agosto para poder cambiar el nombre de North Summer Street a Fernández Way como una forma de honrar el legado de la familia Fernández a la ciudad de Holyoke. Don Rafael Fernández se mostró emocionado por el evento y nos compartió sus emociones y pensamientos en ese momento. Me siento muy contento. Mi gente nunca me ha fallado. Nunca. Yo espero que yo tampoco haya fallado a él, pero siempre han estado conmigo en mi negocio, siempre. Le doy gracias a Dios que me dio todos esos años para yo poder criar mi familia y atender mi negocio y eso. El evento concluyó con emotivas muestras de afecto del público que se alineó para despedir con aplausos a la familia Fernández mientras recorrían el Parque de los Veteranos a su salida. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our Black in the Valley segment with our segment hosts, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks and Professor Carly Tartikoff. Our topic today is reparations in and from and for the town of Amherst. Uh, Carly and Jacqueline have with them and us today some very special guests. So let me turn the microphone over to Professor Carly Tartikoff. Carly. Your microphone is muted, Carly. Carly, your microphone is (laughs) muted. You're muted. (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. Carly, you're still (laughs) muted. You were just. As we continue. Okay. So since Carly is still muted, let me. Um, Jacqueline, would you like to uh, uh, introduce our okay. guest? Uh, oh. Uh, she's here. I'm unmuted now, right? There, there you go. go. There, there you go, go, Carly. Okay. Let me repeat myself. <laughs> um, the Amherst Town Council recently committed $2 million to a reparations fund. And Ms. Michelle Miller who's the chair of the African Heritage Reparation Assembly, has been pushing the town to move this, uh, to move it in this direction. Miller is a town counselor and mindful educator. And with her is a member of the Black Heritage, no, uh, Black Assembly of Amherst, who's also been working on reparations for a long time. And they're here to tell us the implications of their work and why it is important for African-Americans to be involved in the next phase of this important uh, agenda. Michelle, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And Shabazz, Dr. Shabazz, welcome back again. Can, will you start the mill car with giving us a brief history of reparation of the reparations movement in Amherst. Thank you. When the town of Amherst was uh, officially incorporated and broke away from Hadley in uh, 1759, 
Uh, it's about at that same time that we have documented evidence of an African who had escaped, um, who had fled the person declaring themselves their, 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 their owner, their master, uh, David Parsons. And um, we, because we have an advertisement that Parsons took out declaring that, you know, he was offering a reward and that no one should dare to help uh, this, this African uh, who went by the name of Pump. And, um, and, and, and so we, we start from there in acknowledging a history of harm. But as to the specific question of the, the momentum around Amherst becoming a part of the reparations movement, the reparative justice movement, this has been, um, I think, a really uh, concerted endeavor has, uh, has taken place um, since the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the uh, so-called uh, awakening uh, and, and, uh, uh, in, in the country. And, um, and we've had then concerted efforts, the emergence of reparations for Amherst, uh, co-founded by uh, uh, Matt and Corrine um, uh, uh, Matthews and uh, uh, Michelle Miller, uh, their work in organizing people to begin to, to look at uh, uh, a process of acknowledging, of studying and acknowledging the harms that have happened from the very beginning of Amherst to the present and uh, getting an important resolution in December of 2020 by the town council on the basis of, of some of the research effort up to that point of acknowledging a history and of contemporary effects of structural racism in the town and a pledge to begin a process of repair, to do better, to end structural racism. And so consistent with that resolution, that was just the talking the talk, uh, the town began to walk the walk in creating the African Heritage Reparations Assembly, in uh, seating seven of us to, to do this work of developing a reparative justice plan, as well as uh, beginning to put uh, you know, the, the, the town's money where their mouth is by creating a reparations fund that started at 200,000, uh, and now there is a pledge to grow it to, to 2 million. So that's the quick quick uh, uh, version, uh, but I turn it over to, to I, uh, I'll leave it at that. Okay, can I interject a question here? Sure. Please do. Was there ever an acknowledgement on the part of Amherst for its role in that whole period of slavery as early as it began, as many of us thought that it was different up here than it, than it was down, down south. Did Amherst ever acknowledge its role in slavery? I think Matt, Michelle can answer that. Either, either one of you. Yeah, I, I'm happy to, to answer that. Um, so following, um, as, as Dr. Shabazz said, following the murder of George Floyd, we did put a petition out and ask for the town to acknowledge their role um, in slavery, in anti-black structural racism from the inception of the town. And that happened through a resolution, which can be found um, and we could make available for folks who would like to see that. Um, so it happened through a resolution that was unanimously adopted by the town council. Um, Dr. Shabazz, maybe you want to add to that in terms of what else in your mind would be considered a holistic acknowledgement uh, aside from the particular resolution that we're speaking about? No, I, I think you've covered it. The, the resolution was backed uh, or in a process of the council engaging with an historical timeline uh, and, and historical evidence uh, stretching back to, to slavery and enslavement. But let me say this, Dr. Uh, uh, Jacqueline Smith-Crook, um, the acknowledgement process 
the acknowledgement was not just embedded in that December 2020 resolution. That's one step in a process of acknowledgement. This acknowledgement phase, we're still in, okay? If you, if you want to use the language of, of Professor Sandy Darity, who went to high school here in Amherst, yeah. father, major yeah. contributor to, to the history yeah. of Amherst, um, he talks about the arc of reparations. And so we have acknowledgement, we have redress, and we have closure. And people seem to run around saying, what's your strategy? The strategy is, is clear. The strategy is there. So we, we have this acknowledgement period, and we're still in it. We're still conducting the research. We're still sharing the, the stories, the histories of harm, and, uh, and collecting the histories of harm to, to establish a clear documentary record. At our meeting today, we're going to be looking at the legal instrument that will go forth for, for state legislation to create, uh, to declare reparations a public purpose for the town of Amherst so that without any legal problems, we can conduct this reparative justice program. And if you read the very preamble of the draft legislation that, uh, that has been produced, that we'll be discussing today, in the very preamble, it lays out that we start from an acknowledgement of the history of harm going back to slavery and that that is the basis of the public purpose we're wishing to engage in in terms of this reparative justice uh, process. Thank you both. I was that was sort of uh, prompted by uh, the the conversation I heard prior to our coming on and uh, uh, Greenfield and the process. So thank you very much. This is Black in the Valley. This conversation this morning is about reparations in the town of Amherst. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. And I have a question, which is $2 million. What will it be used for? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHM. Now that I got the money, 50 acres in the model Who's your health care hero? Business West and the Healthcare News welcome your nomination for the 6th Annual Healthcare Heroes Awards. On the front lines or behind the scenes, in the hospital, administrative office, the lab, the neighborhood clinic or medical office, who's making a vital contribution to the quality of life in our communities? It's time to recognize their efforts. The deadline for nominations is July 30th. Go to businesswest.com or healthcarenews.com to nominate your healthcare hero. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Your weed eater. We mean weed whacker, but weed eater fits better in this ad. Makes life simpler. Well, now the mortgage eater from Franklin First does that as well. Franklin First reintroduces the mortgage eater loan. The loan that pays off your first mortgage or works as a second mortgage to give you financial flexibility. Mortgage eater loans start at five-year terms and have no closing costs. So visit franklinfirst.org, get all the details, and apply online. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA, equal housing lender. Lundgren Honda. Experience it. Now, it isn't just one thing. It is everything you expect when you're looking for your next car, your first car, or to repair your car. Award-winning customer service, no-hassle negotiation-free pricing, and friendly, familiar faces you know and trust with your vehicle. All that and the best selection, the most pre-owned vehicles you'll find anywhere in Franklin County and beyond. Over 100 to choose from, including five Honda Civics in stock, five HRVs, five CRVs, and over over 20 half and three quarter ton pickup trucks in stock and ready to roll. Lundgren Honda is constantly loading up on inventory, so experience it. The best selection of new and used vehicles in the tri-state region for the best price you'll find anywhere. 
Consumer Satisfaction Award winners two years running. Lundgren Honda proudly provides you with an award-winning experience. See the latest selection of new and certified pre-owned cars at 409 Federal Street and LundgrenHondaOfGreenfield.com. Lundgren Honda of Greenfield. Experience it. There are farm fresh eggs just around the corner and beef across town. Local food is all around. It's a connection to your community, to the land and the people. There's a handy guide to the farm fresh food all around you, the local hero guide on the CISA website. You never know how close you are to something good for dinner tonight, something harvested just this morning. CISA's local hero guide, your guide to farm fresh food, on the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our Black in the Valley segment with our segment hosts, Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, Professor Kari Tartikoff, and special guests Amokar Shabazz and Michelle Miller. Let me turn the microphone back to Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. Jacqueline. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we had some uh, off-the-air conversation going on, and I'd like to uh, bring our listening audience in on it. Uh, Dr. Milkar, um, how was the amount decided upon? And who were the decision makers about that amount? This is the $2 million that the town council has allocated or indicated it would allocate for this reparations uh, mm -hmm. movement uh, and effort in Amherst. Dr. Shabazz? All right. So we want to talk money. I love I love y'all y'all here at Black in the Valley and Amherst. Y'all y'all like to get down to the bottom line real quick. Okay. So so you know, coming as we started, and you'll have to get uh, Council Member uh, Michelle Miller to to give you the the full story on that. But we we found ourselves just as we're starting this process um, with the opportunity to grab some cash out of what's called certified free cash. And um, long story short, uh, about 200,000 came out of that, a little over 200,000. And it was sort of modeled on the amount that had been collected in that previous fiscal year uh, that had been collected from cannabis taxes, okay? And so initially as one funding stream the, we had we were raising discussion as we became organized as the African Heritage Reparations Assembly. One of the funding streams we raised is the cannabis tax revenue. And there's a whole thing we could go into that, the injustices, the, the way in, in the study of, of disproportionate uh, uh, arrest and, and uh, around uh, marijuana when it was illegal, all these different reasons that we could look at why that was raised ethically and, and financially as a possible funding stream. But again, without ever making that happen, um, the council said, let's start the ball rolling by putting into a stabilization fund uh, this amount from the certified free cash. That is a surplus that, that was unclaimed, unspoken for. You could roll it over into uh, the new fiscal year, or you could put it in a stabilization fund. Um, and so it was chosen to put it into a stabilization fund to earmark for, for, uh, uh, for rep reparative justice work. Well, again, that's just a part of our process. Once we were put together as a group uh, trying to fulfill our charge, we, we know that everything in Amherst works on a, and in other municipalities work on, on a kind of cycle. And if you don't get to the financial question early, then it could be a long time down the road before you will get to, to, uh, uh, to bring it up. So we decided to jump on that right away and to begin to put forward to the town some of our thoughts about ARPA money, about uh, Community Preservation Act money, about marijuana, cannabis tax revenues, about uh, um, funds in a lot of, as well as continuing the free cash process, the certified free cash process. So we started putting all of that on the table in our deliberations. And then, um, and so ultimately around the cannabis tax revenue stream, we found a lot of pushback from council members, council members on the finance committee in particular, where this was, was directed to, had a lot of concerns about the idea of earmarking uh, uh, anything from 
from, from, from town revenues. Um, questions raised about how you're obligating future councils uh, to a decision being made in one particular year. So we heard the pushback, we heard the concerns about it. We went back into our deliberations. And so um, we, we went back to looking at the process that had occurred once, which was the certified free cash and said, well, here's an idea. Why not uh, commit ourselves to continuing to take a portion of the certified free cash? Again, this is the surplus that you didn't spend that, that and, and even after you put most of the surplus uh, into, into your, your other rainy day accounts, let's take a little portion of it modeled on, on the cannabis revenue and commit ourselves to developing a kind of endowed fund, an endowment that could fund uh, uh, reparative justice uh, uh, efforts. And so two million, we, we, we deliberated on two million as a, a good, uh, uh, um, figure to look at something that could be achieved over five years or so if we, you know, depending on their revenue amount, uh, but it could be reviewed every year. So if it's a bad year and you can't uh, put anything that year, well, okay, let it go until things are better. But then the good year, if you could do more, put in more until you build it up to two million. And, uh, and then we could have uh, a certain amount annually coming from the investment of that two million. Again, this is not the end of the financial discussion. This isn't the end. There are other streams like Community Preservation Act, but again, that has certain stipulations on what you can spend it for. There are other, there are grants, there are other possibilities, but again, for this particular uh, model of funding. We have one minute left. Came with two million. So we have one minute left. Okay. Because it's so rich. I will turn it over to Carly. Sounds like you had a question, Carly. Well, my question, I'm not, uh, I think might have been partially answered. Okay. In terms of accountability. I have one last okay. yes or no question. Is the $2 million what it will be been designated, what will be spent on, or that's still part of this process? It's part of the process, I think. And that would be right. Michelle? Yes, indeed. That is part of the process that we will continue with um, now through June 2023. Um, so there will be a, a consultative process with the Black community, and we encourage folks to get involved, come to our website, African Heritage Reparation Assembly at the town of Amherst, and uh, please um, voice yourself and get engaged. Michelle okay. Miller, Amalekar Shabazz, Carly Tartikoff, Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, thank you all so very, very much. I really appreciate this conversation. Forbes Library is Northampton's public library with an amazing circulating collection of over 325,000 items including bestsellers, recent releases, tons of movies, large print books, ebooks, audiobooks, and an extensive collection for kids and teens featuring board books, picture books, chapter books, and graphic novels. The library even has musical instruments that you can borrow. You can search the library's catalog online at ForbesLibrary.org, and while you're there, you can request a card and place items on hold. The library's website is also a great place to find out about upcoming programs and events, which are always free and open to the public. We have story times, book clubs for kids, teens, and adults, poetry discussions, film discussions, author talks, concerts, movies for grown-ups, and so much more. Visit ForbesLibrary.org for more information and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up with all the latest happenings. It's your library. Make the most of it. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.